Well, uh, as I was preparing for uh, today's sermon, um, in my little Facebook feed scroll of videos, uh, I came across a, a video that I thought was actually quite appropriate um, as a lead into some of the stuff we're going to see in Ruth chapter 3 tonight. And if you have your Bibles there and keep them open at Ruth chapter 3, that'd be great because we're going to work through it. But we're going to st- actually start with a short uh, video clip of some of the courting rituals of a bird of paradise. So if we can get that up, that'd be great. And we'll just have a little watch. The superb bird of paradise calls to attract a female. And he has more luck. But what does he have to do to really impress her? consider her verdict. It's hard not to feel deflated when even your best isn't good enough. (laughs) There you go. (laughs) Well, there are certainly some strange mating rituals in the world, and I wonder if that's uh, a little bit like the reaction you had as you heard this passage read. It is a bit of a strange courting ritual that we have here in Ruth chapter 3. But what I want us to see tonight is that actually this is the central episode in the book. And I think the key passage that really opens up the heart of this book for us. And so the main point of Ruth chapter 3, I think, is that God's sovereign kindness to his people comes through the serving actions of others. Or, to put it another way, God's kindness to us should lead us to service of others. God's kindness to us should lead us to service of others. So let's get into it. And I have three points from the passage. First, God's kindness leads us to action. And we're going to see that from verses 1 to 5. So God's kindness leads us to action. Second, God's kindness leads us to other person-centeredness, and that's verses 6 to 13. And then third, God's kindness leads us to generosity, and that's verses 14 to 18. So God's kindness leads us to action, verses 1 to 5. God's kindness leads us to other person-centeredness, verses 6 to 13. And God's kindness leads us to generosity in verses 14 to 18. And then we're going to finish with God's kindness and you. So first, let's have a look at verses 1 to 5, and we're going to see God's kindness leads us to action. So let's pick it up in verse 1. One day, Ruth's mother-in-law, Naomi, said to her, My daughter, I must find a home for you where you will be well provided for. Now, I reckon uh, a little bit of uh, lead-up and background is really helpful to see why this is such a big turning point in the book. 
And so as I understand it, you guys have uh, had Ruth 1 and Ruth 2, whoops, and uh, uh, you should know that uh, after years away from Israel because of famine, Naomi, the Israelite widow, has actually returned home now, but she's returned destitute with her Moabite daughter-in-law, Ruth. But one of the great things about God is that he had actually set up a bit of a social welfare system in ancient Israel. And that was actually quite revolutionary in the ancient world. But basically what happened was as you harvested your fields, you left what fell on the ground for the poor to gather. And so in chapter 2, Ruth had done that. She'd gone to pick up uh, gleanings from the field and she, uh, the field she chose belonged to Boaz, who it turns out was Naomi's distant relative. I hope this is revision for you rather than anything new, but if it's new for you, that's fine. But we're also told in uh, Ruth chapter 2 verse 9 that not all Israelites actually kept this practice honestly and it was actually quite fraught with danger for a lone woman. This was actually a really bad period in Israel's history. But in chapter 2, Boaz had ensured Ruth's safety while she gathered her grain and, in fact, made sure she had extra grain to gather all season long. Now, let's go back to Naomi. To this point, as you would know, Naomi has had a, actually had a really hard life. So you would have heard in chapter 1, she lost her husband and her two sons. She's lost all her possessions And she's even gone so far as to rename herself Mara. And actually, her two names tell her story. So Naomi, the name Naomi, actually means something like pleasant. But Mara means bitter. And so far, uh, you would have seen that Naomi has had no energy or drive really in the narrative at all. And I actually think that's really understandable. Uh, She's never condemned in the book for what she goes through and how she responds to God, particularly in the first couple of chapters. And I actually think that's really important to say. Because as we've heard already tonight, life can be very hard, can't it? And in fact, it may be very difficult for you right now. And there will be times when it just takes all your energy or even more energy than you may have just to stay afloat and keep going day by day. And so I reckon Ruth is one book of the Bible, it's not the only one, but it's one book of the Bible that tells us that God understands this. God is in complete control of our world, but that does not mean that we will always be in control of our lives, or even feel like it. So I want to say first off, if that is you at the moment and life is just hard every day, then the first thing you ought to take from this passage is that God understands, and he loves you, and he will keep you and watch over you, even when life feels completely overwhelming. And uh, if you needed any more assurance of this, just remember how in Jesus... God himself has experienced overwhelming grief and sorrow to the point of death. He knows and he loves. 
But what we see in Ruth chapter 3, verse 1, is actually God kindly lifting Naomi out of the valley that she has been in for so long. And so Naomi, you can see, she sees what's happened as signs that despite everything, God is still kind and he actually has a plan for her and Ruth's care. But notice, she doesn't just sit back and wait for it to happen. She's energized and she plans and she takes action. Verse 2. Now Boaz, with whose women you have worked, is a relative of ours. Tonight he'll be winnowing barley on the threshing floor. Wash, put on perfume and get dressed in your best clothes. Then go down to the threshing floor, but don't let him know you are there until he has finished eating and drinking. When he lies down, note the place where he is lying. Then go and uncover his feet and lie down. He will tell you what to do. I will do whatever you say, Ruth answered. All right, now, let's be honest. Initially, this sounds a little bit dodgy. But I actually think if you look closer, it's actually very careful and caring what Naomi does. So notice first Naomi's motivation in verse 1. She says, my daughter, I must find a home for you where you'll be well provided for. And I actually think that's genuine, right? She's not just being like a gold digger mother-in-law. She is thankful for everything that Ruth has done for her. And she is now very concerned for Ruth's care. She wants Boaz for Ruth, not because he is rich, but because he is kind. And back then, marriage was a family affair. So, you know, having your parents involved like this, I think it's pretty normal, okay? Uh, The other thing is that her instructions to Ruth are to make her as attractive to Boaz as possible, and quite forwardly so. But I actually think, again, this was also to mark that Ruth's mourning period as a widow herself was now over. And now she is free to seek a marriage partner again. Uh, The way she goes about it might also be because they were destitute, so they couldn't approach things normally. There had to be a little bit of ingenuity and secrecy. Uh, But I don't think it's to seduce or entrap Boaz, but actually, as we see as the passage unfolds, I actually think it's to give him real freedom to refuse while preserving his and Ruth's integrity. Now, we're going to see more about this in the next point, uh, but here, all I want us to notice is that Naomi sees no conflict, and I don't think we should either, between God being in complete control of everything and us, under him, actively planning and taking action. And so the American preacher, Rail, sorry, Dale Ralph Davis, uh, puts it this way. He says, believing in God's sovereignty doesn't stifle you, it stimulates you. It doesn't enervate you, that is, suck out your drive, it energizes you. It doesn't freeze you with a Z. It frees you, F-R-E-E-S, to plan and act for him. And so I wonder if you've ever thought of your life like that. That God wants you to use your life for him. 
to think and pray, how do I serve God and please God in all that I do? Because actually that's what we're meant to, isn't it? And, and that's when life is actually most dynamic and makes sense. So I want to challenge you, have you got a plan for where you are in life now to do what you can to serve God with your life from this point? Now, three quick points about that before we move on. Uh, first of all, of course, we need to make sure that our plans line up with God's plan and that we're not just using God as a cover for what I really want. And second, if that's the case, then we actually need to know God and what his plan is. And the way that we do that is through hearing him speak to us through his word. So how are you going with regularly, consistently reading the Bible? At church, in a Bible study, in your own reading? How is your communication and relationship with God going? And third, uh, we don't know how our specific plans for God will pan out, whether from an earthly point of view they will succeed or fail. But we can trust that God will use it for his glory and our good, even if from our perspective it doesn't work out. And uh, I was thinking about the many times that that's actually been true for me in my life. Uh, and one thing that came to me was uh, actually when I was uh, looking for uh, a job, an employment opportunity. And uh, I remember actually uh, uh, planning and praying and, and thinking there was a certain opportunity that was just set up for me. This would have been perfect. I could have served God really well with my life here. And things were going really well, making progress. And then suddenly it shut down. And it was so hurtful and so disappointing and I felt like, what happened there? You know, I made a plan and it has failed. Was God not with me or something like that? Uh, we ended up having actually a very different employment opportunity um, in the meantime, which actually turned out to be really wonderful. Um, but it was actually that different opportunity that opened up other doors that actually led me to where I am currently serving God uh, as I do now. And just looking back, uh, you can see how even though that avenue seemed to be a failure at the time, it actually opened up a way for us to serve God in a very different way. Uh, but nonetheless, I think as we look back, you can see that that was actually God's plan. And so again, I wonder whether you have a plan from here. How can I serve God with my life? So that's the first point. God's kindness leads us to action. Second... God's kindness leads us to other person-centeredness. This is verses 6 to 14. So if we continue on in this uh, narrative, Ruth gets herself ready and then makes her way to the threshing floor where Boaz is going to be. And uh, after it, let's uh, be honest, a little bit of a shaky start, including almost literally scaring the pants off Boaz, she makes her request. Verse 9. I am your servant Ruth, she said. Spread the corner of your garment over me, or literally spread your wing over me, since you are a guardian redeemer of our family. Now, I want to get one thing clear. This is not a request for sex. It is a request for marriage. So in Ezekiel chapter 16, verse 8, 
that same phrase, to spread his wing over people, is actually used metaphorically of God committing himself to be united to his people like a marriage. He spread his wing over them. And notice how Ruth also calls Boaz a guardian redeemer. And again, this is a key term for Ruth, which I think if you were here at least last week, uh, you would know. And it basically refers to a group of extended family who could come to your aid in a situation of desperation so that your family line and heritage could continue without you losing your land and rights, at least not legally. Now, we're going to see more next week how this idea of the kinsman redeemer is actually one of the key parts of the book of Ruth that leads us to Jesus. But for now, I just want you to note that Boaz is stoked beyond belief with this development. Verse 10, The Lord bless you, my daughter, he replied. This kindness is greater than that which you showed earlier. You have not run after the younger men, whether rich or poor. And now, my daughter, don't be afraid. I will do for you all you ask. Now, at this point... The romance meter is off the scale, isn't it? Right? This, this is like period drama heaven. But actually, uh, through the romance, I, I want you to notice how what undergirds this whole interaction is actually God-shaped integrity and other person-centeredness. They are actually the heartbeat of the interaction between Ruth and Boaz, not the romance. How do we see that? Well, let's start with Ruth. Uh, Ruth knows her mind, right? She takes initiative and she communicates her intent very clearly and very directly. And uh, ladies, can I just note how especially helpful that is for fellas? (laughs) In fact, throughout the book of Ruth, Ruth is clearly a formidable woman. And you can see that in verse 11, Boaz says that Ruth has already gained a reputation amongst his people as a woman of noble character. And in fact, that word is literally strength or integrity. And so I reckon it's helpful to note that the Bible sees and encourages women as perfectly capable of being strong, able and powerful. But notice also, verse 9, how that is balanced by her gentleness and her invitation to Boaz to take initiative for her care. She says, I am your servant. And she uncovers his legs to wake him up, but she doesn't then force herself on him. She makes her intent and desire clear, but then leaves room for him to accept or refuse. Quite beautiful, isn't it? What about Boaz? Well, verse 10, Boaz recognises that Ruth ultimately belongs to God. Uh, So verse 10, The Lord bless you, my daughter. And that then gives him a duty of care in all his dealings with her. But notice also the level of his integrity. Verse 12, As keen as Boaz is on Ruth, he recognises there is a nearer relative who has first priority in this little cultural custom and he refuses to do the dirty to get around it, even if it means 
he is going to lose his chance. Uh, Reminds me a little bit of a scene in the movie The Castle uh, when the mum, Sal, tells uh, Dale Kerrigan uh, the story of how she and Daryl, the dad, got together. And so I've got the uh, dialogue here. I'll read it out for you. And she says, you see... I won't try and do the accent, all right? (laughs) You see, I used to go out with a very handsome young man, well-to-do, called Bob Thompson. One night, he took me to the Greyhounds. He put on a real show, ate at the Carvery. Anyway, we had wine, champagne. He put on all my bets, and he was just sweeping me off my feet, and I wouldn't have been at all surprised if he'd popped the question. Well, anyway, later on, out of the corner of my eye, I spotted this lanky bloke struggling with one of his greyhounds. It's a red rocket. Now, Bob, he went off to talk with one of the stewards, and this young fella, he comes right up to me and starts chatting to me, and he asked me out. And I said, well, I'm on a date. Well, he backed right off. He said he wasn't cutting anyone's lunch, and he wished me good night. And I thought, that man has principles. And from that day on... I've only had eyes for one man. Isn't that nice? And I think that's a little bit like what Boaz does here. He says, look, he had the opportunity, and yet he says, no, there is someone nearer. I need to hold off and do things properly. And so Boaz then, what does he do? Well, he stands guard while Ruth sleeps, and then he arranges for her to leave safely and discreetly. And I think what we're meant to get from this scene is an absolutely beautiful portrait of two people utterly concerned for the other person over themselves. There is no coercion, no manipulation, and no selfishness in their interaction. Other person-centeredness characterises everything about them. And so this should be a template for the way we relate to one another. Uh, It obviously has particular application, I think, to Christian marriage, which should be characterised by tender protection and care of each other. But I think it's something for all of us in our approach to other people. And so how do we put this passage into practice? Well, I think what it means for us is that we, we need to work at building our character of integrity and strength in other person-centeredness. Because at the end of the day, that's the character of the God who made you and loves you. And so I want to ask you about your relationships, about your attitudes towards others, about your behaviour. What is it like? Let me, again, just remind you of the main points of how Ruth and Boaz interact and just get you to ask the question, is that what you aim for in the way you relate and you behave? So is there protection and care of others as you interact with them? Do you create room for others to be open and vulnerable before you? Do you seek to act with utter trustworthiness so that people can depend on your word? Is there any space in your heart where there's abuse, manipulation, belittling of others of any sort, physical, 
emotional, sexual, or spiritual. It's pretty searching, isn't it? And uh, I reckon if I'm honest, uh, as I ask myself those questions, uh, there are certain areas where you go, oh, actually, yes, there are areas I think I need to address uh, that I need to reshape myself along the lines of the character of God that we see in this interaction between Ruth and Boaz. So what is the challenge for you? What aspect of your character and heart can you work on to shape more around the character of the God who is other person-centered towards you? So God's kindness leads us to action. God's kindness leads us to other person-centeredness. And finally, God's kindness leads us to generosity, verses 15 to 18. And so we see this uh, in this last little episode in the narrative. Uh, Verse 15, Boaz says, uh, Bring me the shawl you are wearing and hold it out. When she did so, he poured into it six measures of barley and placed the bundle on her. Then he went back to town. When Ruth came to her mother-in-law, Naomi asked, How did it go, my daughter? Then she told her everything Boaz had done for her and added, He gave me these six measures of barley, saying, don't go back to your mother-in-law empty-handed. And what I think this last part of the narrative shows us, just in a tiny but beautiful little way, is that it actually shows how eager God is to give his people signs to assure them of his love and grace. And actually, the way that it's put here in Ruth chapter 3 is especially significant because if you go back to Ruth chapter 1, verse 21, uh, you'll see there that Naomi returns to Israel after everything that has happened to her with these words. She says, I went away full, but the Lord brought me back empty. And notice that the end of the chapter refers to the time that this is at the beginning of the barley harvest in Israel. Now in chapter 3, verse 17, we're back again at barley harvest. But this time, Ruth returns from Boaz with her, her, her bundle full of barley and his words, don't go back to your mother-in-law, literally, empty. Can you see how God is answering what Naomi said in chapter 1? It's like God looks at Naomi, hears her words, and responds, I will not leave you running on empty. I will fill you again. But notice how he does it. It is through Boaz's act of generosity. And what I think this shows us is that God often uses his people as vehicles of his kindness to others. And so often it is more powerful than we could ever think. Right? A bit of barley from Boaz, you know, it probably wasn't a huge thing to him and it may not mean much to us, but it was incredibly important for Naomi. And so often what may seem insignificant, even just a small token of generosity and love, can have a huge impact on those in need. 
Uh, you know, it doesn't solve your problems. It doesn't replace your loss. Uh, it won't take away your heartache completely or wipe out your sorrows. But it does say, like that little bit of barley, God says through them, I have not forgotten you. And sometimes that's exactly what we need, isn't it, to keep going with God. Um, I can think of specific people who probably don't even know how important just their kind words and small acts have been to me, but it was just the thing that I needed at the time to pick me up and encourage me. Um, in fact, I went through a bit of a low time a little while ago where I just felt flogged by everything and I was feeling flat and really overwhelmed. And a mate of mine just kind of noticed in passing I wasn't quite right, and he just swung by and said, do you want to go out for a coffee and a chat? And, you know, it was such a small thing, but it was just what I needed at the time. Um, have you ever had an experience like that where you just feel like you're running on empty and then just somebody swings by and just does something small and kind that just lifts you and gives you energy to, and strength to keep on going? Uh, one of my favourite writers, uh, C.S. Lewis, uh, puts it this way. He says, our heavenly, our heavenly Father provides us pleasant inns to refresh us on the journey home. Uh, they are not home themselves. They do not provide perfect or permanent rest, but they renew our energy on the road to eternity. I think that's such a beautiful way of putting it. That's what we need, isn't it? We know that these small acts of kindness are not the solution, but they can just give us that lift that we need to keep going for God. But here is the challenge and the encouragement from Boaz in these verses for us, and that is that you can be that for others. You can be a taste of God's kindness in your small acts of generosity towards others. Wouldn't that be a wonderful thing to be, a, a taste of God's kindness to others? Uh, it may be a small gift like Boaz here, but what about your time, your prayers, a phone call or just spending time catching up with a friend? Uh, what about something like inviting someone outside your normal circles to join you for an outing or something like that? Or sharing Jesus with someone you know needs him. Again, I want to challenge you. How can you be an instrument of God's kindness to others in your generosity towards them? I think that's a great challenge, isn't it? And so countercultural in our me-centered society. But so much like the Lord Jesus. And that's exactly what we see here in Ruth. So uh, let me wrap up. And I just want to finish again by highlighting how Ruth chapter 3 calls on you and me once we know God's kindness to us to then use our lives as instruments of his kindness to others. And um, I, I just want to uh, finish uh, by pointing out, I guess, in, how that works in Ruth in, in how we started with birds and wings. Uh, we'll leave aside the crazy mating rituals, but birds and wings will be there. So uh, you might remember that in chapter 3, verse, uh, verse 9, uh, Ruth asks Boaz to spread his wing over her, and that that echoes God spreading his wing over his people in the book of Ezekiel. But actually, that same idea of 
um, uh, spreading wings over people has actually already been expressed earlier in Ruth, in Ruth chapter 2, verse 12, by Boaz. As he says to Ruth, may you be richly rewarded by the Lord, the God of Israel, under whose wing you have come to take refuge. And so can you see how in Ruth chapter 3, verse 9, when Ruth says, well, Boaz spread the corner of your garden, spread your wing over me, she's effectively saying to Boaz, mate, why don't you be the answer to your own prayer? Right? You know God's kindness to you, so will you now be the instrument of his kindness to me and my family? And that is our wonderful challenge as God's people, isn't it? We know God's kindness to us in a far greater way than even Boaz or Ruth because we know God's ultimate saving kindness in Jesus as he bore our sins on the cross and then rose to give us eternal life. So what will it look like for you to be an instrument of God's kindness to those around you this week? I want, you to, I want to give you a moment to think and maybe write something down and then I'll pray. How can you be an instrument of God's kindness to others this week? Let me pray. Dear Father, we give you thanks for this narrative that we have in Ruth chapter 3 where we see so beautifully played out people who are deeply impacted by your kindness to them in turn taking action, being other person-centred and being generous towards others. And so as we hear your word, we pray you would work that in us and we pray that our great model and inspiration and empowerment for this would be the Lord Jesus himself, whose kindness to us led him to the cross as he died for our sins. And it's in his name we pray. Amen.